Good afternoon and welcome to Telehealth, Redefining Delivery of Care and Igniting Radical Change in Healthcare, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Philips. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We are looking forward to some audience participation. Uh, questions and comments, you could send them in in the Q&A box at any time. Uh, we'll get the questions in front of the panelists a little later in the program. And we're going to do a little poll, have a little fun with that later. Uh, to get your settings into a nice uh, view, click on side-by-side -side options in the top, the top center to get that in side-by-side -side mode. And then you can adjust the divider to get the slides in the video boxes how you like them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going about 35 to 40 minutes with our panel discussion featuring John Kravitz, CIO at Geisinger Health System, Kathy Ross, CIO at Broward Health, and Dr. Adam Siever, Chief of Medical Affairs, Patient Care and Monitoring Solutions with Philips. All right, we're going to jump right in. We've got a lot to talk about, and we're looking forward to it. So. John, let's start with you. Can we get an overview of your organization and role? Sure. Um, thank you, Anthony. Yes, my organization is Geisinger Health System. We are about a $7.2 billion uh, net revenue organization, uh, integrated delivery network, 13 hospital campuses, uh, well over 500 clinic locations, a medical school, and a health plan of about 600,000 members. Um, and my role is corporate uh, chief information officer. So I have the responsibility for all areas of technology within the organization. And I've uh, been with Geisinger Health System just about 11 years, CIO, uh, four and a half years. Excellent, John. Thank you. Kathy? Hi, yes. My name is Kathy Ross. I'm the chief information officer for Broward Health System located in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We're a five hospital health system. We have about 1,700 beds. We are a safety net public hospital health system, public health system, one of the 10th largest in the United States. We cover two thirds of the county of Broward County and um, that's it. <laughs> Excellent, Kathy, thank you. Dr. Siever? Yes, uh, my name's Adam Siever. Uh, thanks, Anthony, it's a pleasure to be a part of this. Uh, I serve as a head of uh, medical affairs um, for two businesses within Phillips, which is a large uh, global medical device company. Uh, my responsibilities are for pre-hospital care, including defibrillation and monitoring, as well as uh, hospital respiratory care, which has certainly seen a boom in the last few months. I, I also uh, serve as a physician specialist in a large telehealth program. Uh, I uh, continue my clinical practice in an EICU for Sutter Health in Northern California, uh, covering uh, 10 hospitals, 15 ICUs. And last night we had a census of about 160 patients. Very good, thank you. All right, next question. We have all seen how the pandemic placed tremendous stress on hospitals with unprecedented increases in acute care resource constraints, unpredictable demand, and the threat of potential repeat outbreaks on the horizon. Can you provide an example of what worked well during the COVID-19 crisis? Kathy, let's start with you. Well, honestly, the when the pandemic started, we started operationally decreasing what we were doing. We stopped with elective surgery so that we could prepare for the surge and that was predicted. We we did a, a constant review tied in with the county to identify where the hotspots were in the county. We used our analytics to predict what we would be, um, when we would be flattening out. I mean, we really did a lot with our analytics to determine how can we make sure that we have enough beds if in fact we did get a huge increase in inpatients and we were able to manage that. However, we are currently in another hotspot um, being down here in South Florida and we are doing the same thing. We have stopped our elective surgeries. We are using our analytics. We're predicting when we, when we feel that our uh, peak will be projected and we are looking on how on a daily basis, how many beds we have, what resources we have. We have a call every day to review how many ventilators, how many PPEs, how many devices, 
we have and as well as resources. And that honestly, one of our biggest challenges at the moment is clinical resources for respiratory therapists, critical ICU nurses, um, you know, some farm techs. I mean, we're really, we're really getting short staffed is our biggest issue. Short staffed. Okay. All right. John? Yeah, so I think uh, things that Kathy had referenced, we've done the same uh, with, you know, when we were in the hot hot spot period, which we are not in currently, but we are preparing for, I would say, a second round of COVID hitting our organization. Um, Geisinger is throughout Pennsylvania. And so our areas that we service where we have several, well, we have three campuses up in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania. And that had a lot of influx from New York City, New Jersey, North Jersey coming across. And so we had a very high um, caseload of COVID patients, a lot of infections, uh, a lot of people that expired from COVID. Um, but we really had you know, a lot of people in our ICUs. And then we had also done a lot of overflow into med surge units to, to assist in the surge. So a lot of surge planning by our chief administrative officers for each of the systems. Um, each location for the hospital platforms when I reference the systems. Um, a lot on analytics, a lot of uh, predictive analytics work by our team, who I think did a really great job on that piece as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were planning for the worst and the worst really never hit other areas outside of the northeastern part of the state. Uh, again, because of that influx across from New Jersey, North Jersey, and New York City. Um, but, you know, I think we, we planned for it to be really bad. We redeployed, closed down a lot of locations, as Kathy had indicated. Uh, we have also um, you know, redeployed a lot of staff to assist from those locations that were closed. Elective surgery stopped, of course. Only emergency surgeries would occur. So, you know, volumes way, way, way down, had a big impact negatively on the bottom line, severe impact on the bottom line. And, uh, you know, that process continued. Um, other than the obvious, you know, use of telemedicine to, to make up for those acute patient visits, uh, we've done a lot of that work. Um, we're doing a lot of new things now, uh, innovation-wise. We're doing a contactless uh, check-in and roaming process, which we're doing a proof of concept with two clinics, about to expand it to two more clinics, and then start going like gangbusters because we don't want to have to shut down clinics uh, when COVID gets high again in our area, our territory. Um, so what we'll do is use of a mobile device, uh, geofencing outside of our facilities. A patient could be in their car. We know when they arrive, uh, they don't walk right into a waiting area. They will stay in their vehicle or stay in the hospital, separated from other people, socially distanced, um, and then be uh, secure text message back and forth when the room is available so they can go right into the exam room. Uh, same on the checkout. So there are a lot of processes that we're building into that to uh, provide a lot of automation. We think that'll be really important for us not to have to shut down clinics uh, in the future and you know, really preempt care for our patients. Telemedicine will continue. Uh, before COVID hit, we were doing about 1,000 telemedicine video visits per month. Uh, at the high point, we were in excess of 2,000 video visits per day uh, with about another 2,000 um, telephonic visits uh, for patients that couldn't do video. Um, but we've, you know, the nice thing is we saw the tipping point. We've crossed over to about 60-40, so 60% video visits versus telephonic. And, uh, and those numbers have decreased with opening of, of services, but uh, it's still continuing, which is good news because I think that is the direction we need to go. And I think every CIO in the country would feel that way, so I'm not saying anything new there. So back to you, Anthony. All right. Very good. Dr. Siever, what, are you, what, are, what have you seen um, working with different customers and Sutter and all the things that you're up to? Yeah, so I, I would say that in my personal experience, the EICU and telecritical care has worked really well. We've been doing it now for 17 years. Uh, Sutter was one of the first to adopt the technology, and that's uh, built sort of the people infrastructure to be able to use it in creative ways. It certainly allowed us to project expertise into our rural hospitals it's allowed us to move patients from hot spots to facilities that are unstressed with deep knowledge of what's going on with a particular patient. And uh, sort of interesting things have come up, you know, uh, uh, nurses need to help one another, but they may not necessarily need to go in and out of the room, uh, which is very burdensome with the ingress and the egress with the PPE and so forth. So the ability to actually, while you're on site, to use televideo to see what's going on in a room 
has been a, a, a great time saver. Um, I think another thing that's worked well, just uh, sort of as an observer, is that the secular familiarity with IT, things like iPhones, uh, you know, broadband to the home and so forth, has allowed people to adopt to televisits uh, for ambulatory care. And even though people thought older folks might not be up for that, uh, their uh, sons and daughters have pulled together and uh, they're more tech savvy and have really made that work well as, uh, in addition. I'll stop there. All right, very good. Let's go to our next question. <clears throat> and uh, John, we're gonna start with you on this. What clinical IT platforms outside of the EMR best supported quick scalability of telehealth and best enabled you to stratify your patients? Yeah, and I think uh, to Dr. Siever's point, uh, we've been doing tel uh, tele-ICU for about 10, 10 years plus now, just a little over that. Uh, we use a separate system. We're using um, another outside system outside of our electronic health record. In our case, it uh, was the, originally the VisiQ system, but Philips had acquired that. Uh, that has been really a good system for us. Um, we have that completely integrated into our EPIC workflow for those patients. Uh, we do service other rural hospitals in our area as well. So our tele-ICU, um, the, the box, if you will, that the physician and ICU nurses are in, uh, has been very, very good for us. Um, we service oh, around 120, 130 beds through the tele-ICU, and that's worked out really, really well. Um, we also, <clears throat> we have every, every one of our clinical systems, we, we try to integrate into the EPIC workflow. So it's uh, least amount of, of challenges for our clinicians to utilize. Uh, the telehealth system, we have been, um, we have that solution in place. We use InTouch, you know, for our telehealth system, integrated into EPIC. So the appointments are, are integrated into our EPIC enterprise scheduling system and they come across um, and then the documentation flows back in from the telehealth uh, uh, visit itself, uh, as well as CCDA data elements. So for us, it's been very clean. Um, it's worked out really well. Scalability, you know, some challenges in the beginning as everyone was trying to move to, to telemedicine. But I think the company has really done a great job in enabling us to, to stratify and support our patients. And again, as Dr. Siever had indicated, we were you know expecting younger patients to to gravitate toward telemedicine what we were surprised as well was the you know elderly patients or medicare type patient or medicaid type patient um, were very much in tune with telemedicine visits on a smart device smartphone or a tablet and um, and for the most part even though we have a rural setting um, we're, we're also in urban settings too but uh, rurality was the most concerning for us because of maybe limited bandwidth, uh, limited, uh, you know, uh, capability cellular. But uh, for the most part, I think we've had a lot of success with that and uh, very much accepted and appreciated by our patients. Very good. Kathy? Well, unfortunately, we were not as technically advanced as John and Dr. Sievers we did not have a tele telemedicine presence for either ambulatory or for in inpatient. So we had to quickly devise um, a strategy to use for telemedicine, similar to what John said about minimizing the frequency that physicians or clinicians are going into the rooms. We, we quickly stood up you know, iPads with Microsoft Teams on them to be able to monitor remotely and to be able to communicate with the patients and with the clinicians, but we did it with within a couple of weeks. We have not been doing this for years. So we stood up our telehealth in a matter of a month for both ambulatory and inpatient. And we're, we are actively using that system. It has been adopted exceptionally well for the short period of time that it's been in play. And it has really um, changed the perception of all the clinicians in Broward Health about even for physicians who were resistant to telemedicine prior to the pandemic. Currently now we have a lot of the inpatient physicians who are using the iPads and, and the Microsoft Teams to communicate with the patients, to stay engaged with them. And it's really on, almost to the point where they're actually more engaged than prior. Wow, 
Very impressive. Uh, Dr. Seaver, your thoughts? Yeah, so e even though we had an established uh, EICU system, which I must say the infrastructure that we've developed, including EPIC has served uh, most of our needs. There, there have been wards that we've been <coughs> forced to open that um, may not have that infrastructure. And so like Kathy said, uh, we've had to stand up iPads and, and that has been very successful. I've also uh, noticed that um, my physician colleagues who have private practices are now uh, using texting and email and FaceTime for conferring on their patients, uh, sending EKGs and x-rays and other observations around, uh, which in the days before COVID with all the HIPAA restrictions just was not done. Makes me cringe a little bit, but um, I, I am seeing that uh, technology being used. All right, very good. Adam, uh, Dr. Siever, we're going to start with you on this question. What previous healthcare challenges may have been exacerbated in terms of data sharing, digitization, complex workflows, or handoffs of care? Yeah, so I had to scratch my head a little bit in terms of thinking about this question. Um, and um, I would say that for the most part, those are relatively few. I will say that when we use uh, iPads for uh, working with nurses who are in a room as opposed to a camera that's fixed on the wall, it's very cumbersome because you really need a camera person to aim the iPad and uh, it doesn't allow you to have hands free. It doesn't allow you to have the control of uh, moving the images around. Um, uh, you know, the uh, like I had mentioned, I think before we started uh, this issue of being able to hear people through uh, PPE and uh, PAPRs and all that sort of stuff when you're using uh, <clears throat> digital audiovisual technology has been difficult. Uh, the last thing has to do with the fact that when you have a, 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 um, a systematic uh, installation of IT infrastructure, uh, you can have things like census lists and, and you get used to knowing how to find patients when they call you about a patient. But when you stand up these sort of virtual wards um, it, it's very difficult. It's hard to know how to get to a patient. You're scrolling through large EMR lists of patients. You don't have the, uh, the things set up. So I would say that's sort of a complication of how the digital technology has been implemented. Kathy? I think I, I had to scratch my head on this because I'm not sure that it exacerbated anything, but because of our challenges and our need to stand up additional ICU units that was not previously ICU and set some negative pressure rooms up and making sure that we had the EMR built out for these new locations probably was one of our biggest challenges, and, and we're still doing that to date. We're constantly re redeploying locations and making them either med surge because there was a period of time where we needed more med surge beds. So we had to convert our uh, units that we'd set up for ICU units into med surge. I mean, just constantly making changes on a day-to-day -day basis based upon the needs of what we had in our facilities. That's probably been our biggest challenge during this entire pandemic. John, did this question also make you scratch your head? Because we've well, got two that said it did. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it did when I, when I looked at it. Uh, but I would say what Kathy and Adam both said, I think, are, are relevant because, you know, we, we as well have taken med surge units and made them zero pressure units, you know, that we could, you know, remove the, uh, the air in the, in the units and keep it fresh and, you know, try to keep it as clean as possible for our patients. So it did require a lot of changes, configuration changes, things like that in our uh, electronic health record system. So yes, that was challenging uh, and continues to be, you know, we can flip back and forth now, uh, but we also implemented another tool that just happens to be our, one of our tools from our EMR vendor that allows us to monitor patients uh, like an ICU, but not necessarily in the ICU, which we use another system for, but this is in the med surge units and allows us to do, you know, pulse oxygenation and other uh, telemetry and other things for those patients in med surge beds. So that's helped us to kind of make it like a ICU light, so to speak, capability uh, from our EHR vendor. And so, you know, that was really helpful um, because we've really cut off in the past and we've opened up just a little since we went into a green yellow to a green phase within Pennsylvania <laughs> and New Jersey. But um, what we had challenges with when we limited uh, visitation. 
for our patients so that we could limit exposure to people to, to minimize the spread of COVID um, and family members. We did a lot with iPads as well as, as Dr. Seaver had stated. And then we used it to minimize PPE usage too, so we can position it. And it's a little weird, you know, I got to admit it when you're, when you're not, you're using an iPad and you try to get a stand or something to keep a position on the patient so they could keep tracking, you know, how the patient's uh, doing looking at the instrumentation and not necessarily have to keep gowning up, gowning down, don off, don off, uh, donning and doffing of equipment. So, and not wasting PPE. I think that was the most important thing for us. And then the visitation, end of life visitation, things like that. Um, we had some scenarios where that occurred and, and the family wasn't able to get in to it. And we utilize iPads for that. And we just use them for general visitation purposes. So, and, and at one point, I think we deployed 2,000 um, iPads just for telemedicine services to our providers mm -hmm. to be able to assist, similar to what uh, Dr. Seaver was talking about. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it stressed us, uh, anything we couldn't manage, even in a, in a very much remote environment where 90% of my team is working from home for IT, only the, uh, the absolutely mission critical, you know, uh, people to support desktops, break fix, those kinds of things. Even contact center, they're all working from home and they work very, very well from home settings uh, for service desk and all those things. So yeah, I don't think it really stressed us uh, to that level, but it was a change and you know something you could adjust to, so. Just to add right. on to what John said. Oop, go ahead, Jeff. I'm yeah. just gonna add on to what John said. It is, it's the amount of work that needs to be done and the amount of time that we have to do it that's created additional stress throughout this whole, ever since it started and for IT because we're getting daily demands, daily requests. And we have literally been working for about three months, first three months, virtually seven days a week, at least 16 hours a day to meet the demands. And we're trying to level that out to make sure that we can um, continue to run without burning everyone out in our department, but also to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the business. So that has been extremely stressful on the organization as a whole. All right, thank you for that, Kathy. Uh, all right, John, we're gonna uh, let you go first on this one. Consumer acceptance of telehealth has been strong in response to COVID-19 pressures. And as a number of you mentioned, even older consumers are embracing it. But for historically high utilizers of hospital care, such as those with chronic diseases, how do you see post-acute and home health, home care changing through telehealth? Yeah, I think, um, so we as an organization try to um, really focus on, on population health uh, because we do have a health plan. It's not like, like Kaiser Permanente though, where they have a very, very large health plan. They're not a closed system, but they do service a lot of their patients in their health system. For us, it's about 40% of our patients get served within the clinical enterprise from our health plan. So think about a quarter million people of the 600,000 uh, get services within the health system. For us, that, that helps us considerably because we, we do a lot of uh, population health management through that process. Care gap identification, when you have people with multiple chronic disease conditions, close those gaps in care, things like that. Uh, really important for us. So what we've been doing with telehealth is we're going much more toward uh, monitoring in the home setting. Uh, we also have a hospital at home, uh, which is part of our system that we started probably about a year ago before COVID hit, six months before COVID hit at least, if not longer. Um, and we had physicians, nurses, pharmacists as part of that team, uh, care management as part of that team and they utilize uh, telehealth pretty heavily. In fact, if, if patients have, uh, you know, in our program, and we follow about 3,000 of our patients that are pretty um, severely sick with chronic disease conditions. And so the idea behind it is the sickest of the sick, we wanna have them with, if they don't have the capability for a tablet at home, we would give them an iPad that they can utilize to communicate with us. And I think that's really important because you know, we, we want to look at healthcare as how do we provide the most wellness in care, not the sickness of care and treating sick people all the time. Of course, you have to treat sick people, but if we could do more things in a population health environment and keeping people um, well, as opposed to sick treatments, I think it's advantageous for us. So that's been our model. 
to be able to utilize that as a post-acute care back in the home setting and really leveraging it. In addition to that, we've been providing um, telehealth services into skilled nursing facilities. As most people are aware, that's where a lot of people have been really sick and, and a lot of people passing from COVID. Uh, so for us, it's extremely important that we uh, can provide tele, telehealth, telemedicine services uh, through a SNFIS program directly into the uh, long-term care facilities or post-acute care hospitals or post-acute care centers, I'm sorry. Very good, Kathy. Well, I do, I do think we're to the point where we have started focusing on the chronic disease yet. We're still on the hotspots down here in, in South Florida. I think that the adoption of telehealth has been tremendous in, over the last few months, and I think it's going to continue to expand. And we are in the process of reviewing how can we either partner or grow our home health practices to do more in-home monitoring, to keep the patients out, to work with our skilled nursing uh, facilities to ensure that we can have better communication and, and better to what John said, understanding of health versus just treatment of illnesses. We are growing our healthy intent population health platform and doing more care navigation to try to keep our patients healthy and out of the organization or out of the hospitals and, and even even the ambulatory settings where possible because we are still in the the hotspot. So we're we're still developing, but I do think that post post-pandemic, telehealth is going to be way more prevalent in how we deliver the holistic health care than it has ever been. Well, that's uh, what our poll question's on later, so we're going to see what everyone else thinks. That'll be interesting. Uh, Dr. Seaver, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I uh, agree with uh, what John and uh, Kathy have said. I have very little to add other than I'll give you an anecdote. Um, I, I work with a pulmonologist who had a chronically ill patient um, come in for an, an appointment in the office. And um, she, she called up from the parking lot because they were trying to avoid having people congregate in, in the waiting areas. And somehow she found out that, uh, that televisits were available. And so she insisted on changing the format uh, to being a, a telecall right there from the parking lot in her car. Um, and uh, she, she she clearly preferred that uh, to going upstairs. Um, and I think uh, the, the clinician who told me the story says he prefers this because it's uh, there's a lot of um, burdensome activities to get people into the room and out and in and out of their wheelchairs. It's burdensome on the, on the people working in the office. It's, it's, it's burdensome on the families and of course the patient itself. So I, I think that this uh, telehealth is, uh, is here to stay. All right, very good. Next question, uh, Kathy, we're going to start with you on this. In the thick of navigating the COVID response, what problem-solving scenarios were most new to you and your IT team? Did you find your teams collaborating more cross-functionally than before? So I can tell you, we we started on a, I think a Wednesday, it was a Wednesday, started planning for working from home on the following Monday. So we sent about 1,500 people home that following Monday, I think it was March 17th. I'm not sure I'm not looking at the calendar. And to to the other panelists comment, we're mostly working teleworking at home now. The thing that has been amazing since this started is the collaboration, the cross-functional teams collaboration and the, the team cohesiveness that we experienced in IT that we really would really, really um, increased when we went home and started working. We had a common goal, we had a common team, and we were able to work together and come up with solutions at a rapid pace. Like I said previously, we had a, a need to get, um, to decrease the supplies, to minimize the exposures to the PUIs and the positive COVIDs and they presented that challenge to IT. Me and my team in 24 hours had a solution and stood it up. We, it, it has been a phenomenal experience. And I, one of the side benefits is I think the organization has really come to rely on IT to help be the problem solvers to the challenges that we're experiencing in the operational areas. And it's been, um, it has really developed our entire IT 
function as a team and broken down any silos we may have had. And it has been exceptional. I, I know that's a bad thing to say during this difficult time, but it has really developed and, and create a much more cohesive, unified IT team. Well, I don't think it's terrible to say at all. So uh, kudos to you and your team, and I'm sure a lot of others experience that. John, your thoughts? I, I would I would echo exactly what Kathy just said, because we're seeing a lot of the same thing from our team. Um, you know, ironically, we we stood up uh, Microsoft Office 365, I want to say about a year ago in the cloud, mm -hmm. and we had not deployed Microsoft Teams. We were still on, um, you know, on, on the old uh, solutions from Microsoft, but we started to deploy Teams with NIT specifically and the capabilities to knock down those silos, uh, really important. One thing I, I also did was <clears throat> I started a, uh, a daily huddle with my cabinet, my, my senior leader executive from IT, and we meet every day. And we started that process when COVID started in March. Mm -hmm. And I said, at this point in time forward, this is so productive for us to knock those silos out. Because, you know, you have teams that support like the electronic health record and the clinical systems and you have administrative systems, you have the network, you've got them all over the place, telemedicine. And really, <clears throat> for us, there were no more barriers. So we stated, you know, and I said, I'd really like to continue this going forward when COVID's over. I still want to meet every day. Let's plan for an hour. If we don't need an hour, we'll drop out early. But the daily huddles are really, really important to stay synchronized. And um, yeah, it's worked well for us. Um, I should have been doing this all the while. I kind of kicked myself for not doing it earlier, but you know, we do them all on Microsoft Teams video conference and we have the capability to share a lot of information, uh, very collaborative and uh, we've had great results with it. Dr. Seaver? Yeah, I'll uh, answer this question from the uh, Philips perspective. Um, as you may be aware, it takes years to uh, create a new ventilator traditionally, but uh, with the COVID crisis and uh, technology, uh, we were able to create a new ventilator in uh, weeks uh, instead of years. Uh, we've increased our production uh, capability for uh, life support devices by a factor of four, if not higher. And this is, I would say, largely due to our ability to use collaborative platforms because we've been working from home globally uh, since about uh, April. Uh, we use Zoom and Teams, uh, particularly Teams, to coordinate engineers, uh, clinical, regulatory, procurement, all the different uh, components of the business, uh, all working from home. Um, and uh, a very important thing was being able to bounce ideas off of clinicians in Italy and Asia and the UK very early when they were having their surge to be able to define the user requirements for the new ventilator. So uh, the um, Collaboration technology has really been essential to our ability to respond to the crisis. All right, very good. Uh, John, we're gonna start with you on the next question. What do you see as the top three or two or four essential enablers of next generation technology from, of next generation telehealth from a technology perspective in particular, what's the role of enterprise data, what role will enterprise data informatics and AI play in the transformation? Well, first off, let me start with uh, next generation telehealth. I think, uh, you know, continuing on, I think wearables are going to be really important to collect information real time and send it back into our core electronic health record systems for uh, clinician, um, you know, response, um, tracking of all the information, especially when you have you know, patients that have CAD, coronary artery disease, uh, we have Bluetooth scales in the homes for those patients. If they, um, they gain more than four pounds of fluid, diuretics are necessary quickly, or, or we will have an admission on our hands or somebody coming to the ED and becoming an admitted person. So, you know, the, the management of that through telehealth technology, really, really important. Um, you know, we, we use a a lot of different tools, otoscopes and other things uh, for telehealth services. And I think those are important, um, you know, to, to, to have a, a, a well patient, you know, to, to take care of that patient as closely as we can. Um, we utilize uh, data informatics and artificial intelligence heavily. Um, it, it's helped us because we use a lot of, you know, you think of artificial intelligence, everybody's on that bandwagon, right? And it's really important, but 
machine learning is what, what really starts, you know, looking historically at that data, looking for trends, and then applying algorithms to those trends in order to effectuate change. So we've, we've done a lot um, with data mining, especially for chronic disease patients. And let me use the example of a diabetic patient, somebody who has type 2 diabetes, um, you know, are looking at, at the care that they receive, are they getting regular eye exams, annual eye exams, foot exams, A1, A1C exams, things like that, you know, getting their, their blood work done to see where their levels are and how they're doing so we could treat them effectively. I think it's really important we do that and then we fire order sets back into our electronic health record for the next time the patient presents. That could be in the ED, that could be in the primary care or especially visit and then asking those questions. Uh, you know, that's from the care that's received at Geisinger, but we also have a health information exchange, which goes out into the community. And uh, about 225 uh, organizations are part of that. They could be large health systems. They could be a small physician's practice. It could be a skilled nursing facility that's part of the HIE. But they have touch points in the community where they also have results. And we now are feeding those results in to help close those care gaps from the community as well because everything doesn't happen within our organization and we recognize that, but again, it's part of our wellness plan. And so, yeah, I think data analytics, informatics, uh, AI definitely will play a role, continued role, and it will be improved over time uh, to a point where, you know, as we've done telemedicine and, and the patient could stay in the home setting, heck, why can't we do a lot more for higher acuity patients in the home setting as well? Very good, uh, Dr. Siever. Yeah, uh, so I think John has nicely uh, addressed uh, technologies. I'd like to maybe focus on the things outside of the technologies because I think they sometimes don't get as much attention. And, and what will really be important is to, for us to change the people, the processes and the incentives, including reimbursement, uh, to, make this, to make this all work and for us to be able to uh, really exploit the technologies. For example, last night um, in the ICU and uh, the tele-ICU, we had the ability to uh, monitor patients remotely and uh, bring a patient who uh, needed uh, a higher level of care to uh, another facility. But since all the facilities were fully, fully uh, at full census, um, the only way this would work would be to move patients who were getting better to a lesser level of care. So there's a, a strong culture for moving patients up, but not a culture for moving patients down. So. I think that there are elements of re-engineering the health system, including regionalization of care, that are going to be very important. As far as the technology is concerned, I think that we're very good at being able to bring information in and maybe support cognitive processing of that information, but we don't have good tools for affecting uh, the communication and the collaboration and to actually doing things remotely. For example, I can't change a ventilator remotely. I can't uh, adjust the alarms on, on a monitor um, and, and so th those sorts of things that involve uh, a high degree of coordination and collaboration between remote and bedside people are, are really uh, challenges for uh, technology development. Very good, Kathy. The only thing I'd like to add is, because John and Dr. Sievers summed it up well, is that I, I foresee that we'll we will start seeing more Bluetooth-enabled at-home devices. You're, I know that there's quite a few on the market, but I think it's going to become more affordable. I think we need to develop more of the integration between our patients at home and in the practice, and we can tie in analytics and be able to monitor their blood pressure, monitor their glucose, monitor their weight, monitor their activities, and be able to do some analytics based upon their feedback. How are you feeling today? And have them to be able to tell us on a daily basis that would help us to know before a acute, I'm sorry, a chronic patient at home becomes um, too bad where they have to come into the ED or seek medical attention. I think we're going to see more and more of that integration with the patients at home that will help the telehealth platform keep our communities healthier. All right, very good. We are going to do our little audience poll, have a little fun with this here. So here's the question. Telehealth visit volume will never go back down to pre-COVID levels. So we've heard it's come down. Uh, will it ever go back as low 
as it was originally. So uh, our panelists are invited to uh, take this poll as well. Uh, I'm sure everyone has an opinion. So again, this is an agree, disagree. So let's continue the conversation and uh, and then we'll look at the results. Everyone guess the results. I want to jump to the ask a co-panelist section. Um, Dr. Siever, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Uh, sure. Um, I would ask, uh, John, um, how are you dealing with uh, the financial pressures of um, the, the crisis and how has that changed uh, your uh, uh, procedures for doing proc procurement of larger small systems? Oh, I would say uh, we've been on a mission for a while at Geisinger to, uh, to rationalize our applications portfolio. Uh, having a lot of specialists and primary care physicians, over 2,400 employed physicians across the system, a lot of community docs as well. But uh, we have an appetite uh, all too often for niche systems and not staying with our core process. So <clears throat> what we've been doing, and we'll continue to do this to reduce expense, uh, more integration with our platform. But the idea behind it is moving more toward our core systems, building out capabilities with an integrated model versus integrating, uh, acquiring more, integrating into our electronic health record um, and a strong governance process so that we could really look at the strategic direction for the organization and roll out systems that are noise, if you will, and not necessarily uh, moving the organization forward to meet the strategic direction for the organization. Um, we've we've struggled uh, financially through COVID as other health systems, probably most healthcare systems have. Um, so we've taken a lot of initiatives in that line. And I think, you know, that's part of it to help us recover some costs. Um, we are also, I had mentioned the, the contactless check-in and rooming process that's been developed with our electronic health record vendor and, and other, you know, process tools that we've developed. But <clears throat> it's... Um, it's taking those measures to try to mitigate as much closure in the future if we can do it uh, to keep our patients healthy and safe. And so the same process has come up with even opening for elective procedures. The testing is intense. Um, the, the process, the cleanliness is, is superb. I mean, I couldn't say anything more about it. And, you know, fortunately for us, when I look at our staff infection rates from COVID, they've been very minimal because people have taken those precautions and taken them very, very seriously. Um, you know, any employees, and I go on site a day or two a week, <clears throat> typically, you know, I'll be at, I'll be working from home, but when I'm in for uh, specific meetings, we're always masked up. We take every precaution, social distancing, even in executive meetings, everybody's spread way out. So I think that's, it's important that we continue to be diligent in those efforts. Uh, we, we can beat this thing, but we got to be diligent and smart about how we approach it. Let's get some, uh, Kathy, you want to give your thoughts on the question? I'm going to have to agree with John. We have since I've been at Broward Health, which is a, two years today, today's my anniversary, we have stood Congrats. up. <laughs> we've stood up a strong governance. And to John's um, comment, we're really, really aggressively managing our application portfolio, reducing down the siloed systems, third party, best of breed. And really, for any new technology that we're bringing in, it has to have a business case with a metric that has to be presented back to the governance once the project has been approved and implemented. It is amazing how that has changed the organization's direction. So no longer am I getting my single hospital asking, I need this for me. And because the entire organization is looking at, can we use this enterprise wide? If not, don't even bring it because you're, you don't have any problems that the other or the other facilities don't have as well. That has really consolidated our efforts, but it also has, has enabled us to start more standardizing of how we're operating within the organization and decrease our cost, which is significant. So we can do more with the money that we're saving versus just continually spending on things for what is perceived need versus actual need. Very good. All right. Let's, uh, let's go back to our uh, audience poll and let's have everyone guess at the results. So 
telehealth visit volume will never go back down to pre-COVID levels. What percentage do you think agreed with that statement, Dr. Siever? I would say 85%. 85, clocking you in at 85. John? Uh, I would say 91. 91, Kathy? I'm going to play, let's, uh, what is it, the price is right. I'm going to say 92. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kathy, you are a winner. You just beat out John by using the price is right methodology. 94%. 94% say it will never go back down to pre-COVID levels. Um, So we will see. But that was uh, very interesting. Um, John, do you have a question for, uh, either of your co-panelists? Uh, I guess, uh, no, I really don't. Uh, I think the answers that my co-panelists have given have been very complete. And, uh, I would just ask, I guess, you know, I, I didn't think of anything for this, but, um, you know, going forward, do we see, uh, our, our employees continuing to work from home, um, in, in the new environment? Do you see that as, as a large uh, volume of your employees, because some of the concerns that our organization has had is we can eliminate a lot of leased office space for support personnel. Uh, we spend about $6.5 million a year on leased office buildings, and uh, we want to eliminate that expense going forward. So as much as we can leverage uh, people working from home permanently or hybrid workers, um, we'd like to do that. But I'm curious as to my colleagues, <clears throat> co-panelists, if, if you are seeing something different in your environments. Kathy, let's start with you. So, John, we as an organization have already made the decision that as long as you have KPIs, measure productivity, and the capability of working from home, if your if your leader would like to continue that, then we're going to allow teleworkers at home. So I've made the decision for IT thus far that we will be at home for the foreseeable future. No one can say forever because we have no idea what's going to happen in our future, but it is for the foreseeable future. The other thing that we're doing is we're creating a hybrid model that is, we call it office in a box. We're sending everything home so that our teleworkers have the same tools at home as they did in their office, but we're creating what we're calling hoteling environments so that if they do need to come on site, no one has a specific place. You don't have an office anymore unless you're an executive or a a leader. You have a a hoteling space where you can dock your your laptop and you can work on site so that it will minimize the amount of space that is necessary for the the employees because to John's point we're trying to decrease our footprint and our cost for um, corporate I guess corporate type of roles because if you're not delivering care can you work from home and we want to decrease how many um, office spots we have because it will reduce our overall operating expense and we're already starting from the IT standpoint we're we've rolled out the office in a box. Now we're going back and we're putting the hoteling in space so that we've really changed. And it's, well, I was starting to say they changed the dynamics of the working environment, but we still have some resistance for the people who want their own cubicle, if you will. But we're working through that. Dr. Sear? No, I would just simply echo what uh, Kathy is saying. I think that's very much uh, what we're thinking through at Phillips, uh, we've done pretty well with the work from home during the last few months, and uh, there was always uh, there's already a move towards that uh, because uh, office space is at such a premium, um, and we've moved towards a model where people do not have necessarily assigned cubicles. So I I think that people will start thinking of the office as a tool in the toolkit, and you use it when you need it, but you can work from home when that works just as well. I think uh, the reduction in travel is something that Phillips has been pushing towards for uh, virtual meetings for quite a long time. And I think this will move this even further in that direction. Kathy, do you have a question for either of your co-panelists? So I'll, I'll leave this to either John or, or Adam. How do you see IT's relationship with the healthcare organizations post-pandemic? Uh, John, you want to go first? 
Yeah, I think uh, so. The way I look at IT is there to service the business. So as the business sees changes happening, um, we want to be an integral partner or look at ways to leverage to grow the business through technology where possible, but not for technology's sake, but in collaboration with the operational leaders of the organization, uh, we'd like to, to be able to provide solutions. So examples, um, the use of bots, you know, to take a lot of the menial tasks that are are in a process to, to streamline that. We look at that even for IT compliance efforts. Uh, we certainly do it to integrate with patients um, uh, where we can. Uh, we have a virtual triage process, which is bot driven uh, and personnel are involved as well. But we look at those types of things for the future. Um, and I think they're really important moving forward. Dr. Seaver? Uh, yeah. I, um, I what I've seen is that uh, because of the shortness of uh, time and the need for quick responsiveness, IT has moved out to be more of a leader um, and take it maybe even be a little bit more autonomous in some of the activities. Um, uh, but uh, that's just sort of an anecdotal experience based on what I've seen here at Sutter. Dr. Siva, we're almost out of time. Uh, so before anyone leaves, we do have a post-event survey I'm going to send out the link to. But Dr. Siva, I want to give you a chance for a parting thought, um, you know, based on some of the things we've talked about today, any kind of message or advice for the senior IT leaders that are going to be on the line today uh, about moving forward. Um, I, I would just say that uh, I think what this crisis has done is showed us uh, what we can do when we uh, move outside of self-imposed limits I think we very rapidly changed reimbursement. We've changed the regulatory environment. Um, I see within Phillips a, a much uh, greater efficiency and effectiveness in the way that we've responded to um, things like ventilator shortages or equipment shortages. Um, I see that uh, within the hospital uh, that we've um, done things that otherwise would have been very difficult to do in terms of bringing up ICUs outside the ICU. So I hope that uh, we can use this as an opportunity uh, to think big about what we can do in the future. All right, great. That is about all we had time for today. Uh, I just sent out a link to a post-event survey. It should also go there when you close your Zoom window, but there's the link if you want to click on it. It's a five-question multiple, five multiple-choice survey about the event today. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready. If you want to sponsor one of our events, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to, view, to register for upcoming events. With that, I want to thank our panel very much, uh, John Kravitz, Kathy Ross, Dr. Adam Seaver. I want to thank Phillips very much for making this a great conversation possible, and I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.